how do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, here. I have a very special guest with me today. I have Steve Phillips. Steve is the CEO of Zappi and the chair of the MRS Sustainability Council. He's been a regular speaker on the topic on consumer purchase journeys and actually won the Best New Thinking Award at the MRS conference and is a recipient of both the ARF Great Mind Certificate and the UK Industries Innovation Award. Steve, welcome, man. Happy to have you on. Thank you, Ryan. Really good to be here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited. So, um, you're doing some amazing things and I'm really excited to jump in, but I want everyone to have a context of where you're at kind of in your journey as a CEO. And so let's do a quick revenue rundown. So if we're looking at this, where are you at ARR wise? So we did uh, $50 million last year. We're looking at probably somewhere between 65, 70 uh, this year. We're trying to push our growth rate. We've been growing at roughly 30% a year for the last few years. And we're trying to push that to more like 35 to 40% this year. So we will see how successful we are in those endeavors. That's fantastic, man. You're absolutely killing it. Um, are you bootstrapped or funded? So we're funded. We've got a couple of VCs, a couple of small state uh, scale VCs, one that came in in 2016, and then uh, one that came in a couple of years after that. So we've taken on some capital. Uh, advisors keep on telling me that we're very capital efficient. Um, I think that's a compliment. I can never quite understand. <laughs> um, uh, but so, so we've taken on some capital, but we're still management and staff still own just about a majority of the equity, I think. Well, so I think that's a compliment in the business world um, from normal people. But then sometimes investors look at it as like, dude, you're not pushing it hard enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, one of our investors did once say to me, Steve, we've never invested in a profitable company. We've never been invested in a profitable company. We want high growth. Uh, and so there's clear <laughs> instruction of what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we know why. We know it's what crazy. It's, okay, how large is your team? Um, so we're just under 300 people. So we're about 285 people. Uh, we've got three core areas. So we're, I'm in the UK. We've got a big programming team, sales and marketing team. Uh, the president of the company uh, who manages the day-to-day -day operations, he sits in Boston. We've got most of our revenue, most of our client base is in the States. So we've got various offices um, in the States, but Boston is our sort of headquarters there. And then we've got a development function, a very strong development function in Cape Town. Um, so uh, th those are our three key, key places. And then we have little offices around the world, whether that's Singapore or Germany or France or whatever. Excellent, ma'am. So very, very um, geographically dispersed. What's your, your go-to-market strategy? We are in the process of pushing as much as we can to a more PLG, a more product-led growth of, um, approach. But I've got to be honest, certainly in the past and still a lot of it um, is relatively uh, old school. So we sponsor events. We're relatively, we do a lot of thought leadership work. We cr create a lot of content in our area and we use that to generate leads. And then we have obviously sales, customer service, et cetera. So we're, uh, it's very much a land and expand motion because the companies we're dealing with, we work with large enterprises, global enterprises, and they obviously have a large uh, amount of TAM that you can, you can address. 
Um, and that means that you're chasing continuously chasing new buying centers, new markets, new brands within those companies, et cetera. So it, it's relatively, um, relatively analog, but we're in the process of digitizing that land and expand motion. Excellent. And, and then what about your solution? Can you just describe the outcomes it creates, exactly what it does? I can. So I, my background is in consumer insights as a, as a market researcher, and I've worked in consulting companies in market research. So I've, I know what delivering great consumer insights is around. So people go off and craft a questionnaire, get some data from respondents about a new ad campaign or a new product or service. And then they would create a report, uh, write that report, go and present it. So what our software does is automates that entire function. So we're a bit like SurveyMonkey, but for experts, an expert-led SurveyMonkey. So we are, we are doing, our clients are used to working with high-end consulting companies, and they choose us as a way of uh, making that consulting come through software and so be significantly faster and significantly cheaper. But when we went to market, when we launched sort of nine years ago, our core proposition was we take something that at the moment takes four weeks and we do it in four hours and we take something that costs $20,000 and make it $2,000. And so that's the core, that's the essence of what we've done. Wow, that's a pretty compelling offer. So, um, all right, let's 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 get into it. So I'm excited to dig into that because it's a very unique offering. And so plus with your ex- expertise in, in human behavior, I think that definitely plays into it. Um, and, and so let, let's talk about how you kind of got to this point, right? There's... There's a lot that's happened, but what what was the journey to get to becoming a $50 million a year, going to be 65, 70 next year, at least, right? If you're not so capital efficient, <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what, what was the journey to get here? Cause that's not very many companies get to that 50 million mark. So what was the journey like? Um, up and down, bumpy, I think we could say uh, along the way. I think the, when I started the company, um, and there's this debate in tech that you'll know, you know, is the first person you hire someone with domain expertise or technology expertise? And I had domain expertise. So I knew the industry we were trying to digitize really well. I'd been, I'd worked in New York, I'd worked in Asia, I'd worked in the UK. I knew the market, I knew the players, um, I knew the offerings out there. So I knew that digitizing that world was a, a, a great way for a company to um, to create value over a period of time. But I had no idea how to do it. So I didn't know the technology. We then, I then found, uh, I went through three or four potential partners, then found a small tech company that was doing an aspect of it and doing it really well. Uh, but they, they, their go-to-market motion was poor. Their business model was poor. They, they were a group of really smart technology people who didn't really understand the business or the, or the domain. So that we ended up starting to work together, and then after a year or so, it was just working. So we merged the two companies, and then the CEO of that company became the CTO of our the, of Zappy. So effectively, what we've taken is my my domain expertise and and their technology expertise, and and aligned them, and and that worked really well. So I think that is the core of why this has worked. Other companies have approached the same problem from a technology perspective, but not understanding the domain well, and some others have known the domain well, but tried to build the technology and haven't, haven't had those technology roots. And I think it's that combination. But that, as I said, I think that's a classic tech story. If you combine really understanding the market you're trying to digitize and also having the digitization 
expertise and skills, then you're in a pretty good place. The other thing I should say is that we were first to market for doing this. Now, I, I have to say this is this is after missing out on two or three previous trends. So I, I figured I'd have to get one of them right eventually. And this <laughs> is the one I think that I got all right. Bit of luck and timing. So wait a sec. So you, you had two or three failures before this one hit? Yeah, so I've 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 opened uh, I've been uh, I've I've had four companies I think four or five companies uh, over my period of, life, of my life and also thought about opening a company in an area and not done it um, so those are some of the misses that you have to go oh I should have done that I should have done that um, <laughs> so yeah so so everyone has everyone has their failures um, and also their successes so I've had a few over the time and this. The other companies I have have been reasonably successful. I've built them, but they've been consulting companies. So they are not hugely valuable, relatively pretty profitable, which is nice, um, not hugely valuable and not very scalable. And, and it was partly the frustration of that lack of scalability that also pushed me in the technology direction. So that that helped put, make me realize that what, what needed to be done was digitization. Oh, that's so good. I mean, so so let's dig in deeper, deeper to that. And I don't even think we're going to talk about this today. But you think sometimes, you know, you had highly profitable, not very scalable on the consulting side. Why wasn't it very valuable? Um, because you're it, it's just not. They, so at the time, I think when I sold the business, it was maybe a six million dollar revenue company. It was probably making 20 percent EBIT. You're valued on an EBIT multiple, but there's also at that size, you're also thinking as a, as a purchaser and as an acquirer, you're thinking, I bet that revenue is really dependent on two or three people. Mm. And if those, if I buy the company and I don't make those two or three people stay, then it, it, the company's not worth much money anymore. The clients will go somewhere else. So you have to make those people stay, which means you have to pay them a lot of the profit. So it's it's just not a great business model it's a nice lifestyle business actually so if you're happy not building value to sell but creating a revenue stream a profit stream uh, an income stream effectively for you as a person long term then it works um, it works better but it's it's very frustrating frustrating if you want to build something for scale and that's why you know in the SaaS world with technology even without the consulting services and support that you might normally give a client, most of our clients would still use the software because it's, you know, it's great and it, and it solves their business problem. And so they would continue using it year after year after year, even if we reduce the service levels and reduce the consulting um, professional service side. So that's just very different from a consulting model where if you're not there, you don't get the next project. Yeah. That's, it's funny. Cause I was just talking to a, uh, a, a person that I know who's at a very big fractional CMO organization. And so we were going back and forth on, on the differences between, you know, SaaS and consulting. And, and I mean, the multiple alone on SaaS right now is ridiculous for, for some companies. It's, I've seen as much as 35 X of revenue, not even EBITDA. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the, you bring up a really, really good point. And so what was your, what was your pricing model there? Were you, were you, um, was it on retainer? Was it um, fractional work, or what was it like? Basically on labor. So you were a project would cost twenty thousand dollars, and that's because you're charging out ten people for x number of hours or whatever it might be. So it's it's an hours really effectively. It's an hours based system, um, and and charging by the hour, it's like the words. It's not a great business model. 
at least to, to help clients because there is no incentive whatsoever to do something quickly mm-hmm. uh, because you're charging for time. So you have to even sometimes just give the impression that it's going to take you a long time. Um, but actually, software is so much better than that because you're not even trying to suggest that there's an, a people component in it. Um, so it's, it, yeah, it, and it's obviously scalable. So. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love, and we, I didn't want to gloss over this. I, I think it was awesome. And I, you're the first person on the show. And literally, I've interviewed, I don't know, probably about 20 founders over the last two months alone. And it's, it's talked about how you have the domain expertise and you're like, I don't have the technical expertise, but I know this stuff needs to be digitized, right? Because it's it's archaic. Um, they had the tech expertise, but they didn't know the space, clearly. Um, so then that leads me to my next question is, all right, you have the domain expertise. You have the technical expertise. How did you find the revenue expertise? Well, I suppose, um, so we, we brought on I, I mean, when we started, obviously, I was doing all the sales and customer service and everything else, right? These, we started to bring in um, professional salespeople uh, probably after about a year. I was very lucky. I found a guy in the States, a guy called Ryan Barry, who was just brilliant as a salesperson. But he was a lot more than that. He's ended up becoming president of the company. So he, no way. Okay, he had, cool. yeah. Yeah, so he he not only had a view about how to sell, but also how to structure a sales function and also had the same sort of experimental mindset that we did. Uh, so he he grew up the ranks, um, effectively built the sales team. And at the same time, we were um, also looking at, you know, where does customer service sit? Where do, what's on, what sits on the platform? What sits on customer service? How do you have a... Um, a, a, an expand function that works effectively cross-border. So we have done, we've gone down different paths and we've gone, oh no, let's restructure. I don't think that's working as well. We've experimented with different types of salespeople. So we went through a period of, of hiring people who have only done SaaS sales, but actually found that the domain expertise was really useful and it was easier to teach domain experts SaaS than it was SaaS people domain. Mm. That's probably something to do with our domain. So we've now focused more on hiring salespeople and customer service people with some domain expertise. Uh, so, so we've gone through different paths. I mean, like, like anything you just, as long as you're continuously learning and testing and trying, um, then, then hopefully you'll work out in the end. So, I mean, you've done something pretty impressive to get to 50 million without any product led growth which is like the, uh, the hot girl at the party right now, or guy, <laughs> if you will, right? How did you, how did you go? I, and let's take it by stages, right? Like, you know, what was your journey from zero to one in terms of creating that revenue from zero to a million dollars in AR? And then next, I, I'd like to hit kind of the next stage. Yeah, I think it's, when, we, when we first started the company, I was still in my old company. So I still was... I was at that point chair, but I was spending half my time on that old company. And we were working in the domain and had clients who were spending money on full full service consulting model. And so I had a lot of connections. I had uh, clients who were prepared to experiment with us. So when we started Zappi, we had really a, a an on tap a group of clients who would at least look at it. 
um, and suffered from the frustration that I knew they suffered from, which is why I set the company up in the first place. But, um, and would spend play money or experimental money with us in the first iteration of the company. Now, as with any software, the first iteration wasn't great. Um, and we probably overpromised and underdelivered on occasion. Um, and we probably churned through a few clients and people were disappointed. Other people were very excited about the possibility that the software um, showed, because obviously going from four weeks to four hours and 20,000 to 2,000 is incredibly um, useful. And I think at the same time, we had that trend in business towards agility. So obviously you have the agile software development pro, uh, movement, and that was spilling into the mainstream parts of business where they were thinking, we should be agile too. We should be doing agile advertising. We should be agile product development. We're using design-led thinking. And our the promise of what we were doing was to empower those agile movers to make quick decisions, to get instant feedback, to understand what customers think about their idea that afternoon or the next day, but not just raw data, but you know, a, a genuine report about what their idea is, their strengths, their weaknesses, areas to improve, what it would do for the brand, how it would make the, their consumers feel, who it's appealing to. Is it more for males or females or older people or young right. people? So we were giving them the insight that they really needed, but in a time frame that worked. And that was the critical thing. At least it, it meant that quite a few companies were prepared to iterate and help us along the way so we had companies that genuinely believed in the promise and would help and, and we this is what we've always done is we've just worked with clients who you know are prepared to be experimental um at least for a few years i would say now our client base isn't necessarily experimental in the same way we have some experimenters within clients but I remember saying to one, chatting to one of our clients probably three years ago. So this is after about year six, and they said to me very clearly, "Steve, you've got to realise you're no longer an experimental budget line. You're now core to our our go to market um, dynamic. So you can't fuck up anymore. <laughs> you can't <laughs> have those bugs in the software. You can't have data problems. You can't. So we that was a good realisation that we had made that that sort of next step jump to being a really interesting piece of technology that could solve our problems to being part of our mainstream tech stack that we expect really high levels of service and uptime and, and quality. And so, so that was one of the big pivots that we, we've, we've had to go through, we're going through it naturally anyway, but it was an interesting process. Steve, can I ask you a follow-up question? Cause that's a great point. I yeah. don't want to miss this. So what, when you cross that, that point of delineation, what was your revenue at? Well, I mean, what were you charging at the experimental phase, right? Experimental line nine versus you're like, dude, you can't mess up anymore. Like what yeah. was the, the point in, of, of that, that crossing? So that was probably when our first client hit a million dollars spent, spent with us in a year. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. now, now we've got, we've got, I think last year we had 10 clients who were spending over a million with us and this year it will be 20 plus, I should think. Um, but once, you know, these, these, these companies, I mean, they're big multinational companies. They have large insight departments, but as soon as you're as soon as you're that type of a type of a number on their expense line, they're expecting pretty strong, um, pretty strong 
uh, technology that doesn't break and delivers on time every time and all that sort of stuff. So, so and let's take it one step further. So if you're doing, let's say you're charging someone a million dollars a year, they're, they're investing, not charging, they're investing a million dollars a year into your software. What would be the, the, an example of an outcome that you would create for that, for them? So what they're doing is they so we're a SaaS plus usage model. So they've got the underlying platform, which is where they'll store all their consumer insight data. Um, and they'll be able to look at macro trends. They, they'll be able to inspire their creators. I mean, we're, our platform is, is basically data for creators. So we are a data platform that creators can ins- help inspire and validate their ideas. The inspiration piece is I've got all my data and I can start looking at trends, what to people in Thailand like, what type of advertising works with um, younger people in Texas or whatever it might be. And then the validation point is, is testing new ideas before they go to market. So before they go to the market, obviously they've got no data. As soon as they hit the market, they'll have lots of data, consumer data, um, media data, um, it, you know, social media data, et cetera, et cetera. But we're, we're the pre-launch piece. So for that pre-launch piece, every idea, um, mock-up, uh, change in price point, all of those things, they'll want to iteratively test. So we'll have a package that says you can do X number, 100 to 500 or 1,000 tests a year, um, and they'll they'll pay for that on top of the platform subscription. So that's how that's our charging model. Uh, okay, so it's it's platform plus usage. Okay, that's that's first round. Okay, excellent. So so let's get back. So then when you when you got to that million mark, what what was the shift you made to go from or the number one focus you made as an organization to go from one to ten million? Uh, so the first thing I did is sell my other sell my other company. <laughs> so I could concentrate on this. So that was a, that was the first piece. Um, I by that stage I'd realised this idea had legs. Um, so we started to seriously think about how we could scale. Um, it, we were loss making at the time, but manageable. Um, but we we were also we'd made a bit of a splash in the industry because people suddenly went, "Oh my God, this can be this is possible." Like people hadn't thought it was possible before. So we realized that other companies were going to try and push in this direction. So that's the point where we decided to take on fund, funding. Um, now, we didn't take on funding. We took on a strategic investor at a, for a very small amount of money at that sort of early stage. So we brought in, basically, it was, a, it was an analog company in our industry uh, that was interested in our technology and wanted to partner. And so they put a little bit of money in. And we use that to build them products uh, that would sit on our platform so that they could effectively digitize some of their go-to-market strategy. So Mm. that was the first stage. And that helped push us from sort of 1 million to 5 to 10 million. And the 5 to 10 million is is where we took on our first uh, VC round. Uh, Okay. So did you... Did you get access and sell to their entire customer base as well when you got to that point? Yeah, that was the idea. So it, it was an interesting period. We were very close to this company, partnered, and they were shareholders um, for about five years. Uh, and we, then we ended up separating. Um, and and it, it was an interesting process going through that with them. So their first thing was, we want to digitize our IP, they're, they're brilliant thinking. They wanted to digitize and be able to offer at a, at a cheaper and faster rate than they were currently doing it. 
The, that started hitting up against their business model. So their business model mm-hmm. was about making money from consultants. So actually, the people on the ground didn't really want to sell in the cheaper, faster version to their clients because they wanted to make consulting. Right, money. yeah. So they intellectually, they knew they had to do that transition. Practically, it was very difficult to drive change, um, and it was a large organization. And some of the things that we wanted to digitize Uh, particularly meta-analytics, particularly the ability to look across lots of different studies, learn about trends. They had been charging large amounts of money for someone to spend months doing something that we could do on a flick of a button on our system. So it became um, a problem for their revenue model. uh, And also, we started wanting to go in different directions. We were looking at digitizing human expertise, which is really the core of what we're trying to do is take brilliant thinking and put it into software. And as a consulting company, the last place you want is brilliant, brilliant thinking is in software because you want it in your consultants. Yeah. You want and to be the brilliant That's what thinker, they get paid right? off. Exactly. So, um, so that, that was a great learning experience. It really taught us a lot. It was wonderful to be able to work with them. Um, but it was, it was one of those pivots that you make when we moved away from that. Okay. That's interesting. That's, I mean, I, I can see that you got a built-in buyer, you got access to the customer base. So a lot of like built-in assumed growth from that. And then, you know, it's kind of like Kodak with digital cameras are like, yeah, this is yeah. great, but we don't really want yeah. it to happen because it cannibalizes a big portion of our business or like Netflix with um, basically blockbuster video, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. same concept. They're like, well, uh, this is good, but we don't really want it. And then you get that internal resistance, which actually leads to their downfall. I'm not saying that that led to the downfall of your company, but um, that acquired you or invested in you, I should they, say. They, they ended up getting acquired by a private equity company that's trying to digitize them there. So Shut it, up, it, really? <laughs> yeah. How yeah, full yeah. circle is that, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. And then in a hyper quick version, because I don't want to, I don't want to like cut the story short because I, I want to get into your ninja skill. So, um, when it, when it comes to the next phase, okay, then what was the primary focus of getting from 10 million to 50 million? Now you got money back behind you. How much did you take on at that point? We took on about $10 million primary. Okay. Um, you had 10 million and then you took on 10 million? Is that about right? Or were you a little We were less? at seven or eight. Okay. Seven so or eight, seven or eight, took you took on another 10. And then yeah. what was the primary focus to, to get from that 10 to 50? Yeah. So, so then we, we, uh, we, we made a mess of things. We cocked up. <laughs> so we, effectively what we did is we went from about 40 people to 140 people in about six months. And we had no idea how to manage that. It was a disaster. Um, and it, it just slowed us down more than speeded us up. The good thing is we hired a bunch of great people. So whilst it slowed us down for probably six months, it then helped us accelerate on the back end. So it ended up being being a good story. But uh, if you're out there and thinking about doing the same thing, don't do it. Do it in stages. <laughs> just just t- take on people quickly, but not that quickly. Um, and so what we did, we were investing a lot in the platform, building out new solutions for clients, um, working very closely with some major organizations, and building out uh, a much more sophisticated revenue and marketing function. So the standard things, I suppose, with an investment of that type. And we we continued to grow pretty rapidly. Um, we were um, we were then hit by the end of that partnership. So that partnership that I mentioned previously 
was a third of our revenue at the point that we parted ways. And so we lost a third of our revenue in one go, mm. in one hit within three months. Now, that would, that was probably the, one of the most painful times. But it did refocus how our go-to-market mechanism was going to be, that we weren't going to go through a partner, that we were going to have our own relationships with clients and that we were going to build on those. And we were going to work very closely with our client base to decide what our roadmap looked like and how we were going to develop for them in the future. So then it's it's really been a process of continuously investing in what's working and trying to understand continuously what's not working and stop investing in it, right? Um, so I, I, I think other than the recognition of we don't want to we don't want to partner in the way that we had partnered with that um, the agency before. Uh, the main learning was it was iterative. It was about uh, does this piece of ROI work? Does this investment work? Does this type of should we be in this country or that country? Should we be going after this vertical? Can we go after this vertical? So it's a whole series of continuous experimentation in terms of understanding what's what's working, what's not working, and then double down on what works. Okay, so a lot of testing and rating. All right, so so talk to me a little bit about culture and autonomy because i know that's something that you're really strong at so like what's your mental framework as the leader of the company in terms of how you approach leader leadership autonomy culture how do you approach it what's your framework and what have you seen work really well yeah sure i think so we we have um we've experimented a bit with as much sort of radical transparency radical autonomy as we can um, so we've been through different phases. We're continuously learning. We have, I think, a very positive culture. Um, so we get very high employee satisfaction scores. We really, at, at, the, at the heart of it is trust and truth, I think. So we go into things automatically trusting people to do the right thing. And sometimes sometimes it, it doesn't happen, but we, we resist the um, idea of creating a rule for every time one individual fucks up, right? We will, we will, we will not create rules if we can possibly avoid creating rules, um, and we will instead leave it up to people because we trust them. And then, truth to me is about getting to the heart of the why, asking those five whys, getting the heart, getting to the heart of the problem that we're trying to solve, the heart of the issue for the client, the heart of the heart of uh, why teams aren't working as well together as they should. Um, so that trust and truth combination, and and that leads to, I think, autonomy, because it says to people that you can make decisions about what you're doing. You can decide which way your team goes. You know what the vision of the company is. Uh, you can help work through to make that vision a reality. And if that means spending some money, spend some money. If that means uh, experimenting with a client, experiment with a client. If that means developing the software a particular way, do that. Do whatever you think is the best way of helping the company get towards its vision. And And I think if you create that culture, and I have to say, you know, Things like the Netflix deck have been a huge um, impetus into some, some of the things we've done. We read widely on the subject, whether it's reinventing organizations by Frederick Lelou, whether it's looking at um, some of the stuff Zappos did in terms of um, holacracy. So those, the, that thinking, that reading around the subject does impact us. And then we've just taken what we think are the best ideas and implemented it um, in our own space and in our own way. I love that, man. So, so basically what I hear is basically instead of having them earn trust, assume trust or give them trust to begin with, get the five why so that you could foundationally understand really what, what's important to them as individuals 
and like where they want to go and then um, leverage an autonomy structure. And then you take best practices from Netflix, Zappos, other cultural juggernauts. Um, and have you read the book Culture Code? Uh, yes, I have. Okay. Uh, it's, in fact, on my, it's on my desk. Okay, cool. Uh, that's what I thought of. And so, you know, just as one follow-up question, that's a good, you know, three, four-step framework. To take it one step farther, when we're, we're looking at that, you said you take the best of what you've seen work at Netflix and Zappos. Like, what? give me an example of, of what you mean by, you know, some of those things that you just, like, what was the, what was the single sure. most impactful thing that you, that you took from those organizations so, so the, a couple of things. I mean, the, the obvious one is the expense policy from Netflix, which is treat treat the company's money as if um, as if it was your own, and that is our expense policy. So it's word for word the Netflix expense policy. Um, we also do unlimited holidays, and both of those for me are an expression of trust. They are we believe in you. We believe that you will do the right thing for yourself and the company. Mm-hmm. And they're they're the sorts of things that people talk about because they seem radical. Um, But if you've ever experienced them, people people are good people. You know, 99% of the people you meet are trustworthy, decent people who want to do well. And if you're a good organization that treats them fairly and trusts them, then they'll treat you fairly and and trust you. And and I think that gets the heart of, of, of what we're trying to do. And then the tricky bit is maintaining it. So... An example with um, actually our previous CFO, um, we'd had a good quarter and I said to him, right, I'm going to tell everyone on our our Friday roundup on um, all hands meeting that everyone can go that weekend, celebrate having a good quarter. This is under COVID, so we couldn't have a party and say, take your take your friend's family out for a, a meal. And they said, "Okay, great, great idea. Completely agree. Let's give everyone a budget. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what we do. It's not how we work. We just trust people to do the right thing. And of course, if we'd have given everyone a budget and said, you can spend $150, people would spend $145 to $148. Because that's whereas if we say to them, no, we trust you, just go go do the right thing. And they went off and they did the right thing. And the average expenditure was $120, not $200, you know? I was going to ask you what it was. So that's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so and, and and there are a few people who spent a lot more, and and I, someone asked them why, and they said, "Oh, well, it was my grandparents were in town, and so so I took them out because I was so excited to be working for Zappy, and and I wanted to tell my grandparents, and they were like, great, that's wonderful, that's lovely, it's exactly what I'd have done if my grandparents were in town." Um, so yeah, I, and it, but it's it's always when you know we're we're at three hundred people now. When it was twenty people, I knew everyone's name. At three hundred, it's hard. Um, so it's harder to remember that you have to keep trusting, even people you haven't met, even people you don't know, because that's the core of the company, because that's what matters about culture. And so it's defending that, I think, becomes becomes a job over time. Excellent, man. I love this. This is really, really good. Um, it's got the wheels spinning, and I, I think you're doing some amazing things. So. That's awesome that that you have that trust and then it's reciprocated back to you. So we're we're just about up on time. I'd love to spend more time with you, but I I I've, we've already taken enough. So um, where can people find more about you, more about Zappy, and in what you're doing? Sure, um, they can look at our, our web, website is zappy.io. 
um, check me out on LinkedIn, Steve or Stephen Phillips um, at Zappy, uh, and love to start conversations with people. So please do get in touch. Excellent, man. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Ryan. Really appreciate it. It was great fun. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.